from what I understood, the Catholic Church had a teaching about the Eucharist that was just way more complicated and excessive, excessive and, and rich yeah. and big and, and wrong, you know? And yet, Idolatrous. what I'm beginning to find— They're making too much out of a one little yeah, episode and what I'm beginning scriptures. to find yeah. as I look at the Fathers and then as I retrace and look through Scripture is I be, I'm beginning to find little bits and bits of this picture that are be, beginning to kind of fill it out. And it makes you kind of wonder— Maybe the whole thing will be filled out. Maybe all of the colors are there. Maybe all of the bold outlines are there. Hello, and welcome to another mild-mannered episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague, Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network, and if you want to find out more about our work, check us out at chnetwork.org. Some of you already know about us because you're members of our online community, and if you're not and want to be, head on over to chnetwork.org and click on Connect. We would love to chat with you in our online community for people who are interested uh, in the Catholic faith, and that's really what the substance of these episodes is, is trying to explain why in the world can a Baptist pastor, me, a an evangelical rock and roller, would ever in a million years want to become Catholic. And uh, one of the big reasons uh, is the, the Eucharist, and that's the series that we're on right now, yeah. Ken. So tell us a little bit about where we stand currently in our series on the Eucharist. Well, I liked your adjective today, mild-mannered. You got me thinking about the old Superman show. In, you know, a mild-mannered reporter for a, was it a great metropolitan newspaper? I guess so. It was the Daily Bugle? Was it the no, Bugle? The who planet? fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way? Well, well, that's Superman. Superman. Yeah. yeah, the TV show, the old one, black and white <laughs> from when I was a kid. No. Uh, Faster. Okay, where are we? Speeding bullet, which is how those ep- these episodes feel like they go. Well, last week yeah. I joked that I didn't know where we were, and now it's true because you got me going on Superman. Okay, this is where we're at. We're in a series on the Eucharist, and the past few weeks, really, I think about it, the past three weeks, I have been sharing how I became open um, as a Baptist pastor, how I became open to even beginning to think of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, to believe, uh, to think about the real presence. Um, we're going to come back to this theme, in fact, next week, but today I want to shift gears a little bit. And I want to talk about how I became open to thinking about the Eucharist in sacrificial terms. The Catholic doctrine, of course, includes the real presence of Christ, that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist, and it also includes the idea of viewing the Eucharist as a memorial offering, as a sacrifice, which uh, which obviously was completely foreign to me. So that's what I want to talk about a little bit, how I became open to thinking about the Eucharist in sacrificial terms. Well, as with the real presence, Matt, it began with my reading of the early church fathers. In fact, a lot began, when I think about it, with my reading of the early church fathers. I don't, frankly, I don't know how anyone could read the first four or five centuries of Christian history, not to mention um, (laughs) the next nine centuries, but I don't know how anyone could read the first four or five centuries and not see that the early church viewed the Eucharist in sacrificial terms. It's simply beyond dispute. And I want our hearers 
maybe many of you out there, you know, um, evangelicals, Protestants, Protestant ministers, maybe you have heard this claim, but maybe you've never actually read the early church fathers. And so I want to encourage you to just listen to the fathers in their own words as I read a selection. You're going to read, you need a drink of water, a, a, a deep breath, you know, walk around the building a minute before you do this, because there's a lot of these that really illustrate the full weight yeah. of what the picture was in the early well, church. Well, if I get up and walk around the building, then I won't be able to read them. So I'll stay here. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, sounds good. I'm ready. Beginning early and moving forward. But, but again, just listen to the mindset of the early church. First from the Didache, a document, we don't know the exact date, but some have dated the Didache as early as 50 AD. Could be 70, could be 80, could be 100. We don't know. From the Didache, assemble on the Lord's day and break bread and offer the Eucharist. Note already, offer the Eucharist, but first make confession of your faults so that your sacrifice may be pure. Anyone who has a difference with his fellow is not to take part until he has been reconciled so as to avoid profaning your sacrifice. For this is the offering of which the Lord said, Everywhere and always bring me a sacrifice that is undefiled. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is the wonder of nations. Malachi 1, 11 and 14. From St. Clement of Rome, in his letter to the Corinthians, usually dated around 80 AD, but sometimes as early as 70. Our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who blamelessly and holily have offered the sacrifices. Blessed are those presbyters who have finished their course and who have obtained a fruitful and perfect release. From St. Ignatius of Antioch, writing around 110 AD, take heed then to have but one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup to show forth the unity of his blood. One altar, again, it's an altar, not a table, one altar, as there is one bishop, along with the presbytery and deacons. From St. Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trypho, writing around 155 AD, Hence God speaks by the mouth of Malachi, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord, and I will not accept the sacrifices at your hands, Far from the ri- for from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, my name has been glorified among the Gentiles, and in every place incense is offered to my name, and a pure offering. So he speaks, so he then speaks of the Gentiles, namely us, who in every place offer sacrifices to him, that is, the bread of the Eucharist, and also the cup of the Eucharist. From St. Irenaeus, writing around 189 AD, he took from among creation bread and gave thanks, saying, This is my body. The cup likewise, which is from among the creation to which we belong, he confessed to be his blood. He taught the new sacrifice of the new covenant, of which Malachi had signified beforehand. By these words, Malachi makes it plain that the former people will not cease to make offerings to God. I mean, that the former people will cease to make offerings to God, that is the Jewish people, but that in every place sacrifice will be offered to him, and indeed a pure one for his name is glorified among the Gentiles. And Ken, just to pause you there, I want our listeners to kind of catch the weight of what's going on here because St. Irenaeus is the latest of the people you just Mm -hmm. read. And he's writing in around 189 AD. So the latest of the quotes that you just read is around 150 years after the ascension of Jesus. 
That's all. Yeah, it's very close. And and the, the earliest ones you're reading are about 50 years. Uh, the earliest ones that you're reading are written around the same time that the Gospels themselves are being written. Yeah, and it's important. It, yes, and it's important to point out that that I'm reading from in these early stages. I'm reading basically from almost everything we have. So it's yep. not like just a few selected from hundreds of documents, for instance. But these are the main documents that we have, the main writers that we these have. These are the things the church yeah. kept. And, and if, if you don't like the term the church, these are the things that the earliest Christians held on to. Yeah, I read from St. Ignatius, who was one of the first great bishops of Antioch and a martyr. Read from St. Justin Martyr, who was one of the first great apologists of the church from Rome. And then from Irenaeus now, another bishop. But let me continue. St. Cyprian of Carthage, now writing around 253 AD, so now we're in the third century. For if Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, is himself the chief priest of God the Father, and has first offered and has first offered himself a sacrifice to the Father, and has commanded this to be done in commemoration of himself, certainly that priest truly discharges the office of Christ, who imitates what Christ did and offers a true and full sacrifice in the church of God the Father. And it's clear that he's referring to the Eucharist when he proceeds to offer it according to what he sees Christ himself to have offered. From St. Cyril of Jerusalem in his catechetical lectures written around 350 AD, this is from the 4th century, then having sanctified ourselves by these spiritual hymns, we beseech the merciful God to send forth his Holy Spirit upon the gifts lying before him, that he may make the bread the body of Christ and the wine the blood of Christ, for whatever the Holy Spirit has touched is surely sanctified and changed. Then, after the spiritual sacrifice, the bloodless service, offer that sacrifice over that sacrifice of propitiation, we entreat God for the common peace of the churches, for the welfare of the world, for kings, for soldiers and allies, for the sick, for the afflicted, in a word, for all who stand in need of succor. We all pray and offer this sacrifice. St. Ambrose of Milan, writing around 389 AD, we saw the prince of priests coming to us, and we saw and heard him offering his blood for us. We follow, because we are able, being priests, and we offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. Even if we are but little merit, still, in the sacrifice, we are honorable. Even if Christ is not now seen as the one who offers the sacrifice, nevertheless, it is he himself who is offered in sacrifice here on earth when the body of Christ is offered. Indeed, to offer himself is made visible in us, he whose word makes holy the sacrifice that is offered. And then just one more briefly, St. John Chrysostom, writing around AD 388, said this, For when you see the Lord sacrificed, and laid upon the altar, and the priests standing and praying over the victim, and all the worshippers empurpled with that precious blood, can you then think that you are still among men and standing upon the earth? Are you not, on the contrary, immediately translated to heaven? And, and I just want to emphasize, what we've read here is entirely typical. It is typical of what we read throughout the first 15 centuries of Christian history, really all the way up until the time of, of Protestantism and the Reformation. So what was in my life, what is a Baptist pastor to do when he becomes confronted with this reality, 
Yeah, I had the same well, problem or a similar one, except I wasn't a pastor, right? I was still trying to figure out which church had it right because I was as a sort of a Christian punk rock type disillusioned mm-hmm. with kind of all of them at this point. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to get back to the early church. And as I'm finding the weight of what you're reading right here, um, we talked about finding the weight of it in baptism and, and some other things, but with the mm-hmm. Eucharist as well, uh, this whole question of, well, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but it's clear to me what they universally believed. Yeah. Uh, like, I don't, I don't know if I'm on board with it myself personally, yeah. but it's clear to me what they believed was happening at the Lord's Supper. Yeah, and I'm remembering, I'm, I'm looking back to when I went through Bible college, because my undergraduate was Bible and theology, and then seminary, and I took church history in both of these, and I'm thinking about you know the courses on the patristics that I took, and I, and I realized that what they typically did in courses on early church history was talk about the history, that is, you know, the rapid spread of Christianity throughout the, the then Roman Empire, and then would focus on uh, the persecutions, the various waves of persecutions that happened. And then when they became theological, it was usually to focus on the doctrines of the uh, of the Trinity, the development of the Trinity, the development of, of Christology. Um, and, and so reading the early church fathers straight through on these other issues, you know, the altar, the priest, the sacrifice, the, uh, you know, the, the sacraments and whatnot was just really an eye opener. So what was I to do? I mean, could I really take this 1,500 years and just throw it into the garbage heap, as it were, and just say, well, that's Catholicism. It doesn't matter. You know, once Luther comes, everything gets straightened out, or Calvin or Melanchthon or whatever. Okay, so the impact began with the fathers, but let's go to Scripture now and, and see what we can find. And this is an interesting tie-in to the series you and I did titled A Damning System of Works Righteousness, because when we were going on and on about the doctrine of justification— you and I noted at the time how salvation in the New Testament follows the pattern of the Exodus in the Old Testament. You've got your Old Testament Exodus, and then you've got your New Testament Exodus. Even as the children of Israel in the Old Testament were delivered from slavery in Egypt, so the church, which Paul refers to as the Israel of God, is delivered from slavery to sin and death in the New Exodus. Even as the children of Israel were baptized into Moses, so we are baptized into Christ. Even as they were led by the pillar of cloud during the day and pillar of fire at night through the wilderness for 40 years to the land of promise, so we are led by the Holy Spirit through our own wilderness, the wilderness of this world, toward our own heavenly inheritance, and and so forth. The first exodus being the pattern, the type, the shadow of the new covenant exodus, which is launched in Jesus Christ. So let's compare these exoduses a a little bit. First, by asking the question, how exactly was the old covenant exodus launched? Well, the answer is it was through the sacrifice of the Passover. Now, this event is recorded in great detail in chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. You can also read about it in Leviticus 23. I'm not going to read it, um, here because we're well aware of the facts, I, but I just want to kind of walk through the steps of the Old Covenant Passover. What was step one? Step one was that the head of each family would select a lamb, one year old, without blemish from either the sheep or the goats. Step two is that the lamb was to be sacrificed, and the blood of the sacrifice was to be spread on the doorposts and the lentils of each home um, as an outward sign that the Passover had been celebrated in that home. Step three, which is not often forgotten among Catholic apologists, I find, 
but often forgotten on the other side of the fence, was that the lamb had to be eaten. The sacrifice was not completed, in fact, until the lamb was roasted with fire, until the family had gathered around the table inside, and they had eaten the Passover lamb. They'd spread the blood, and they'd eaten it. In fact, if someone had sacrificed the Passover, had spread the blood, you know, according to the commandment, and then decided, hey, you know, let's have a Chinese takeout tonight or, you know, whatever, decide they want to eat pizza or something else, what would have happened to that family? It would have been the, the end, right? This is, they yeah, would have would disobeyed have been, that commandment of God because the lamb is central to all of this, which is, well, I don't want to jump ahead to the way that the new covenant Passover is mm-hmm. celebrated, but I think the centrality of the lamb is is so crucial to understanding where you're going with this. Okay, so the lamb has to be selected, the lamb has to be slain, the blood has to be spread, and then the lamb has to be roasted and has to be eaten. And if they, if a family did everything but didn't eat the lamb, then what they would suffer is the same thing that the Egyptian families suffered, the death of the firstborn. Okay, but then there was one more step. The Israelites were commanded to keep the Passover as a memorial throughout their history. Exodus 12, verse 14 says this, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as an ordinance forever. So let's tie this together here. From the time of the Exodus, which occurred about 14 centuries BC, every year in the spring, the sacrifice of the Passover was to be reenacted. For seven days, sacrifices would be offered and unleavened bread would be eaten. The children of Israel would remember the night when God had delivered them from bondage in Egypt. They would proclaim that deliverance through these liturgical actions, and they would enter into the experience and, as it were, relive it every year, year by year by year. Okay, now let's uh, let's roll the tape forward now about 1400 years again to the so new one Exodus. of those celebrations right you know one of those annual yeah. celebrations is essentially what we're looking at next some yeah you know, millennium about and a half 14 later. centuries later the new exodus that was launched by Jesus Christ first of all it was interesting for me to learn and this is something i'd never heard before but interesting to learn that there was a jewish tradition that said that when the messiah would finally come to deliver his people he would deliver his people on the very night of the Passover. Okay, St. Jerome mentions this tradition in his commentary on Matthew chapter 4, where he says, There is a tradition of the Jews that the Messiah will come at midnight according to the manner of the time in Egypt when the Passover was first celebrated. Now, Jerome is writing in the 4th century, but there is evidence that the tradition that he refers to is a tradition that went back to the time of the temple, which would be pre-70 AD when the temple was destroyed by the Romans, and probably to the time of Jesus and before Jesus as well. In his book, very good book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, um, biblical scholar Brant Petrie refers to one rabbinic commentary on the book of Exodus, in which it is written, and I'm quoting now, in that night they were redeemed, that is the night of the first Passover, and in that night they will be redeemed. Um, in another rabbinic writing, the Exodus Rabbah, it was written, and I'm quoting again, on that very night, that is Passover night, know that I will redeem you. Exodus Rabbah 18, 11. Okay, 
very interesting that this was a tradition that was floating around that that the deliverance of the Messiah would occur, if you will, as the fulfillment of the Old Covenant Passover. In fact, on the very night, on the exact night. Well, not only is this interesting, this is quite amazing, really, especially given the fact that the Last Supper in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, the Last Supper where Jesus announces the inauguration of the New Covenant did take place on the night of Passover. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are explicit on this. And I'll just read them. Matthew 26, 17 through 19. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is how the Passover began, I mean, which began with the Passover, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Jesus said, go into the city to such a one and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Mark 14, verse 12, and on the first day of unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And then Luke 22, 14 and 15, when the hour came, he sat at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are crystal clear, Matt, that the Last Supper is a Passover meal. It's occurring on the night of Passover. In fact, just by reading the description of the Last Supper, we can see evidences that this was indeed the Passover meal. The fact that it took place in Jerusalem fits. The Passover had to take place in Jerusalem. Jews had to come from wherever they were to Jerusalem to have the lamb sacrificed in the temple and to keep the Passover. The fact that it took place at night fits with it being Passover. The fact that wine was involved fits with it being a Passover meal. And then finally, the fact that at the end, we are told they sang a hymn. No doubt Psalm 118, which was referred to as the Great Hallel, this song was always sung near the end of the Passover meal. And so all of this fits together. All of this fits together. This, The Last Supper was a Passover supper. But there's even more connecting the two, the Old Covenant Passover and this New Covenant Passover. We also find Jesus at the Last Supper doing exactly what the father of a Jewish family for 1,400 years would do during the Passover meal. And that is, we find Jesus explaining the meaning of what has taken place. Um, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 24 and following, Moses commands the Israelites, you shall observe this rite as an ordinance for you and for your sons forever. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of, Egypt, of Israel in Egypt, and when he slew the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And All right, now, Ken, yeah. before you jump into the yeah, next thing, there's there's something that, that I certainly did not pick up on, knowing what the Passover was, and even mm -hmm. realizing that the Last Supper is in the context of a Passover, who is Jesus celebrating the Passover with? Why are these 12 guys not home with their families uh, oh. celebrating the Passover, right? Jesus is intending to do something else familial with these guys because if these are yeah. members of Jewish households, 
all 12 of these guys should be somewhere else on this particular night, right? Yeah, they especially should. any of them that would be married or would have children. Yeah, and the fact that there's 12 of them, you know, just rings an interesting bell too because in the first Passover, you got Moses commanding the 12 tribes of Israel the 12 tribes, yeah. to sacrifice the lamb, to spread the blood, to eat the lamb, to keep the Passover. And now you got a situation where Jesus is up in this room, you're right, with these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles who are forming a new family and they are keeping the Passover. And Jesus explains what it means. Just like I know that a tradition developed throughout the Old Testament times in which um, one of the boys in the family would, it, it was a tradition that he would ask, Father, tell us what these things mean. You know, tell us what this means. And the father would explain, this is what it means. This is the Passover meal when God delivered us out of Egypt. Well, at the Last Supper, Jesus does something similar to this, except that it, in, instead of explaining the meaning of the Old Covenant Passover, he explains the meaning of the New Covenant Passover. When we read, and he took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, his disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after supper, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So he's explaining what is happening. He's explaining the meaning of the actions that he's taking. Um, but there's even more, because finally, Jesus follows exactly the pattern of the Old Covenant Passover by commanding his disciples to repeat this Passover celebration as a memorial. And when Jesus said, do this in memory of me, he was without doubt sending his disciples' minds directly back to Exodus 12, verse 14, where Moses said, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as an ordinance forever. So, with bread and wine. Yes. So, you know, this is the bring, other thing that's crazy yeah, about the menu of this Last Supper. Do you see lamb? Does it talk about them eating lamb on the menu at this Last Supper? Well, no, it doesn't. They would have at, because it was a Passover, but right. But, but then, but in the text, in yeah, the text, yeah. it's bread and wine right. that Jesus is using, implying that, of course, he is the lamb that is about to be slain. Right. And in fact, okay, like pulling all these threads together, Matt, when you think about it, there's really no doubt at the Last Supper, Jesus took the Old Covenant Passover celebration and he changed it. Now, he altered it. He took the Passover and he made something new out of it. And when Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus said these things, he was without doubt inaugurating the new covenant that had been promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel 36. He was instituting a new Passover. I mean, this is not um, this is not just guesswork. What I'm saying is this is something that is very clear, is that he was taking the old covenant Passover and he was instituting a new one. Jesus was essentially saying to his disciples, this is the night in which the deliverance begins. I am the sacrifice that, that initiates the new exodus. He was saying all this. I am the new covenant Passover lamb. It's me in my body, in my blood. And now I want you to keep this new covenant Passover as a memorial 
from now on. Think about it. The old covenant Exodus fulfilled and replaced by a new covenant Exodus. The old covenant Passover fulfilled and replaced by a new covenant Passover. And then the memorial that went on for centuries where they would offer the sacrifice every year, replaced now by a new memorial, a new covenant Passover, a new covenant memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, a lot of Christians who are listening to you saying, yeah, Ken, I, we, we, we believe all this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. we talk about it every time we celebrate communion in our own you know, Methodist or Presbyterian churches. I, this is the kind of stuff that you know, a lot of Protestant churches, yeah. uh, certainly I would have heard and understood that, that, of course, Jesus is trying to make very clear reference yeah. to the Passover. This is, this is all what's going on. Uh, why yeah. do you have to yeah. take it to that extra unnecessary level, Ken? Well, uh, again, I began by saying that I wanted to explain in this, this episode what began to open me to thinking about the Eucharist possibly in sacrificial terms, because this was completely unknown in my worldview and in, in my thinking. Well, here's how it is that, you know, what you refer to as the unnecessary step, okay? Um, questions began to sort of flood my mind, and the questions can go like this. Well, what does all this mean? You know, everything we've looked at. The Old Covenant Passover that initiated the Old Covenant Exodus was a sacrificial meal, That point one. That's clear, right? And the Passover celebration that the Israelites were commanded to keep throughout their generations was also, it turns out, a sacrificial meal. It was a a memorial sacrifice. It wasn't just like a a meal. It was a memorial sacrifice where the Passover lamb was sacrificed every year. Well, in the same way, the new covenant Passover that initiated the new covenant Exodus was itself a sacrificial meal. Yes, it was. And so the question that came to me was, does this mean that when Jesus said, do this in memory of me? Does this mean that maybe he was saying, repeat this as a memorial sacrifice? I mean, if the original Passover is a sacrifice, if the memorial they were to keep every year was a sacrificial offering, and now the new covenant Passover is a sacrificial meal. He does use the word covenant. Yes. When Jesus says, do this in memory of me, is he suggesting that we are to keep a memorial offering? Is it a sacrificial? In other words, is the Eucharist a memorial offering? Is the Eucharist a sacrificial meal? I'm just raising this as a question at this point, but it seemed like the, the trajectory of what the, was being taught here points in that direction. In fact, when St. Paul said, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast. I mean, was he thinking? That's one of those verses I never saw, Ken, by the was way. Was he thinking about what the Lord's I would have seen Supper? Christ our Passover. Yeah, yeah well, I would have seen Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, we don't need to make any other sacrifices ever again because Jesus died once and for all. I I was yeah. completely oblivious until yeah. I started reading the Church Fathers that you mentioned before that this kind of language is all throughout St. Paul. Yeah, or I might have... I'm, I might have read it as Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the peace. I mean, feast. Let's, let's, let's have let's a happy party, life. Right? You know, let's have a happy Christian life now because the sacrifice has been offered without any reference to the Eucharist. But like you mentioned, when we looked at St. Paul two weeks ago, we noticed that he compares and contrasts the Lord's Supper 
with pagan offerings and with the sacrifices of the of the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. Yeah, I was getting this sensation, and maybe you've gotten this sensation yeah. too. You know how you watch a movie that's like a mystery yeah. and you don't know how it ends, and then you see the, the yeah. brilliant ending of that, you know, how they solve everything. And then later on you go and watch it mm-hmm. again and you're like, oh, obviously this scene was like setting up this, and this scene was setting up this, and that scene helps this scene make a whole bunch more sense. And it, because you've seen it with the fulfillment. Right in your mind from the beginning. And and, and that's kind of the, the way that this picture started to come together for me. You know, you don't see all those pieces and clues and references in St. Paul if you're not looking for them. But yeah. once you start to see the way that the, the church fathers are talking about the, the Lord's Supper, you start to think, well, maybe Paul was talking about this too, and I just didn't realize it. And the fact of the matter is that Paul was talking about this in this way. Yeah. Very clearly yes. and repeatedly. Yes, yes. And it flows from the trajectory. That's my point. I, I think. I mean, that's the point of what we're what we were looking at with the old and new uh, today. Uh, you know, the Passover was a sacrifice, and the memorial that was kept every year was a sacrifice. So now we have a new covenant Passover, which is a sacrifice the la- at the Last Supper. So when Jesus says, "Do this in memory of me," is he just saying now, "Oh yeah, to just switch to a memorial"? I, all I mean now is a memorial, or does it open the door to thinking about the Eucharist, the, the, the Lord's Supper, in sacrificial terms? Now, it was clear to me again, kind of to, to, to cycle back to where we began, it was clear to me that this was the faith of the early church, and that this continued to be the faith of Christians really up until the birth of Protestantism. I picked up J.N.D. Kelly's classic, again, Early Christian Doctrines, which is really one of the classic books on on. On, on early Christian doctrines. I mean, it was used as a, as a textbook in colleges and seminaries all over the world. I picked this up and I read again that part where he talks about the Eucharist as sacrifice. And listen to this. J.D. Kelly writes, it was natural for early Christians to think of the Eucharist as a sacrifice. The fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy demanded a solemn Christian offering and the rite itself, that is the rite of the Eucharist itself, was wrapped in the sacrificial atmosphere with which our Lord invested the Last Supper. The words of institution, do this, must have been charged with sacrificial overtones for second century years. Justin, at any rate, understood them to mean offer this, (laughs) do this, offer this, in memory of me. The bread and the wine, moreover, are offered for a, a memorial of the Passion a phrase which, in view of his identification of them with the Lord's body and blood, implies much more than an act of spiritual recollection. There's J.D. Kelly summing it up, too. I mean, even the words, do this, Justin understood to mean offer this. It was a sacrifice being offered. Make this sacrifice. And not just offer it like, you know, I'm going to offer an idea here. <clears throat> Offering in the sacrificial, yes. you know, priestly, religious, term and this is this is uh you know mm-hmm. goes back to something else that was completely missing from your uh worship and my worship uh we would when we would say sacrifice we would sing songs like we bring the sacrifice mm-hmm. of praise into the house of mm-hmm. the lord like sacrifice for us is just like i'm going to sacrifice you know my wants and my desires and and turn my life over to god yeah. there was no sense that there was any kind of sacrificial De- element to our worship other than just us turning our lives over to Definitely. God. Definitely. The, the bread and um, the grape juice were not being brought forward as an offering. No, no, no way. As an offering to God. That wasn't in the... No. No, we offered it to each other as we passed the plate or, you know, th- mm-hmm. that's that's not at all what we were thinking about. 
Um, when we did this, we weren't thinking that we were connecting in any special way to anything other than a memory. Um, well, yeah, this was just completely a foreign language as I was reading this stuff uh, from the church fathers to realize that, holy cow, this is how they talked about this. This is not how we talk about this. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, let me kind of wrap up my thought on this then. Yeah, because there, there's so much more that I wanted to understand. This was just the opening, really, the you know, the key, the key turned in the lock to open the door to thinking in sacrificial terms. But there was so much more that I wanted to learn and to understand. But as St. John Henry Newman said, quoting him, bold outlines and broad masses of color rise from the records of the past. And I got to say, this is it again. The outlines were becoming clear to me, the, you know, these bold outlines and broad masses of color. This much was becoming clear to me. What Christians had believed from the beginning was that in the Eucharist, with the prayer of consecration, bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, the real presence, and are offered up as to God as a memorial offering. Very, very, extremely, unbelievably different than what I had learned and what I taught and what I thought, what I believed, and how I instructed others. And yet, consistent. I was beginning to realize consistent with what I could see actually being taught in Scripture. In the New Covenant, our Lord definitely launched a new exodus. There's the old exodus, there's the new. Today, you and I have looked at the Eucharist as the new Passover celebration. And next week, I want to cycle back and look at the Eucharist as the new manna, because there's, there's more to be seen and more to be said there. The new bread from heaven. And this is going to bring us to that classic passage, John chapter 6, and Jesus's words, his amazing words, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. And there's no way for us to get into all no. that in this episode, because with all this, as you were discovering, and, and as I was discovering, there was this sense that, oh my goodness, there is a lot more to what's supposed to be happening with the Lord's Supper than what we were doing once a quarter or once a month. Uh, there was this, this sense that there was layer upon layer upon layer of, of how the, the earliest Christians understand what, what it meant to carry this out, to, to uh, guard this trust, um, yeah. to obey this command. You, of our you Lord. know, it's kind of like, like this, bouncing off what you're saying. You know, from what I understood, the Catholic Church had a teaching about the Eucharist that was this way more complicated and excessive, excessive and, and rich yeah. and big and, and wrong, you know, and yet Idolatrous. And what I'm beginning to find. They're making too much out of a one little yeah, episode. And what I'm beginning scripture. to find yeah. as I look at the fathers and then as I retrace and look through scripture is I be, I'm beginning to find little bits and bits of this picture that are be, beginning to kind of fill it out. And it makes you kind of wonder, maybe the whole thing will be filled out. Maybe all of the colors are there. Maybe all of the bold outlines are there. Yeah, and we'll yep. get to some of those next week. In the meantime, Ken, uh, to end on a little bit of a lighter note, you were talking about Jesus as the yeah. new Moses and the new Passover. You know who else uh, was, since we began the show with this, you know who else was conceived as uh, someone modeled off of Moses would be Superman. Really? I don't know if you know this theory. Well, there's a theory? Yeah, created by a couple of Jewish kids. It's more than a theory. It's a real thing. You know, he's... You know, in a in a volatile situation, his parents put him in a vessel. They ship him away. Right? He's raised by this family 
that's not his own, his original family. He has to conceal his identity. At the end, he helps save people from a bald guy. Yeah, you know I do. This. Superman. Is, now, now you're not going to be able to stop thinking about oh. Superman as the new most. I'm sure there's some connection between the Fortress of Solitude faster than and Mount a speeding Sinai, bullet. But All I don't I know, know if anybody's faster than a that. speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive. Superman able to leap tall buildings at a single able bound. To Superman. There yeah. it is. You know, fighting for truth, justice, and the American way. I didn't know well, that. Well, Ken, so the Superman time goes was too a fast. new Moses. The time goes too fast. Now you know. Now you know. The time goes okay, too next fast. Week we'll look at the new manna. Faster than a speeding bullet. Moses, the new manna. And we're looking forward to that. In the meantime, if you have thoughts or questions about anything we've said today, please do hit us with a note in the comments here on YouTube. Of course, YouTube is a crazy place. Please just actually come over to the uh, CH Network community. Go to chnetwork.org and click on connect. We would love to see you. Ken and I hang out mm -hmm. in our online community, and it's full of people who are uh, you know, trying to earnestly seek truth, and we would love to have you over at chnetwork.org. Subscribe, share, do it all, and we'll talk to you again next time around. I'm Matt Swaim. Ken right, Hensley, thanks again. We'll talk to you soon.